Yeah, Steve's uh, explaining or uh, introducing the guest speaker. I was looking around who this guy is, you know. <laughs> you know, I, I really don't know what I'm doing up here. I mean, because uh, uh, Brother Blue, you could have just kept going. I mean, you were preaching there for a little while. And uh, that, I mean, I, that was better than anything that I'm going to do today. And then Stephen got the mic. I said, why don't you just keep going, Steve, because you, you're on fire, you know. But um, I'm going to tell you, the worship teams, I, I think the uh, colloquial term is killing it, you know. But I, in church, I think he's making it alive. He's resurrecting it. But, I mean, that was amazing uh, band, the whole band. I mean, we, of course, the, the leader gets the glory a lot of times, but, you know, it's the whole band that's. That's making it happen. Well, hallelujah. It's good to be here. Foundations Church, Lafayette, Louisiana. Um, I'm actually, uh, I've been in Colorado almost 30 years, but I'm from, uh, I, I'm from Louisiana, even though I was raised in Mississippi. You know, you, that's possible. It's hard, but it's possible. And uh, other than the slight indiscretion of uh, graduating from Ole Miss, which I got a dispensation for that, I, you know, I got delivered from all that. But anyway... <laughs> Uh, but, you know, I mean, I'm from Louisiana. Um, my, all, my kids were born here. I married a girl in, from Baton Rouge, born and raised in Baton Rouge. So for all practical purposes, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm a Louisiana person. I tell people all the time, and, and also Pastor Steen was telling me he's got a proper Scott that goes to his church. And um, for the other thing, I love Scotland. I love Louisiana, but I love Scotland, too. I've been to Scotland many times. I have some ancestry there. And uh, I know the brother, he, he pointed you out to me. So uh, I've already told my wife, you know, if you go before me, uh, I'm moving to the Isle of Mall. I mean, that's where I'm going and uh, going to live out there. And uh, if that doesn't happen, Abbeville may have to do. <laughs> Amen. They look a lot alike. Yeah. So, well, anyway, today I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, a subject called uh, imperatives. Now, you're not going to find that probably anywhere because I made that up, and uh, it's not really original with me. Of course, the word imperative uh, is not original with me. It's a word. It's actually a word in the dictionary. An imperative, you know, it would refer to things uh, that can't be done without deal breakers. Uh, so in, in every walk of life, you're going to have uh, uh, things, and, and I'm going to call them imperatives again, that... Uh, that are just so much a part of something that if you change them, you would change the thing. Does that make sense to you? So imperatives are uh, non-negotiables. And, uh, and it's a very complex subject. So in my little 40 minutes of here today, I don't expect to, you to completely understand, because I don't know that I completely understand what all the imperatives of the kingdom are. And there are certain things the kingdom of God has made with you, just you can't do without them. They can't be... Uh, removed from the kingdom. And you know, I was being intimidated by complex subjects, particularly preaching, because I'm not much of a preacher, as Steve told you. I'm mostly a conversationalist. I'm, a, uh, I'm more of a master of dialogue than monologue. You know, preachers, they, they just want to talk. They don't want other people to talk back, except say hallelujah maybe or something. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and talking about complex subjects, I'm one of those people, and maybe you're like this too, i got to know where... The origin of things is I got to know where the big gears are. I'm always, what is that essential item in anything? What's that essential ingredient in anything that's really making this thing happen? And so I always had trouble speaking because sometimes to get down there, I mean, you need a lot of time. You know, you have to, like 
Pastor Stephen, and by the way, he made a tremendous contribution to Victory Church. And Megan was on the staff, too. Don't forget Megan. And uh, both of them together, they were terrific. And, uh, and Steve would, I'd come down to Steve's office, and uh, we would have these great conversations. He'd come to mine occasionally. Mostly I went looking for him. You know, good conversations are hard to find today. I don't know, maybe not here, but in my world, they're hard to find. But, you know, when it comes to talking about complex things, I would always be kind of intimidated. And then, you know, I read a scripture for the, uh, not the first time, because I'd read it many times, but it didn't mean, uh, it finally meant something special to me. And I, and I believe people ought to have life scriptures. How many of you got life scriptures, like certain scriptures that really mean a lot to you? Maybe you read a scripture at some point in your life, and you identify that scripture with that point in your life. And I've had many life scriptures, but... One that's really with me now, one that's stuck with me is 1 Corinthians 8.2. And it basically says, as I'll paraphrase it, Paul said, if any man says he knows anything for sure, that shows me he don't know nothing. <laughs> if any man says he knows anything for sure, that shows me he don't know nothing. And what Paul was saying there, obviously, is that in the things of the Lord, the more you know, the more you learn you don't know. Amen? So when, I, I'm not intimidated by talking about complex subjects anymore because... Um, I know I can't get to the bottom of it anyway on this earth. I mean, I'll have to get in his presence in that unapproachable bright light uh, before I know the bottom of anything. But there are certain things I believe that are in the kingdom that if they get removed or if we lose them, the whole equation changes. The whole kingdom changes. The church would change. Um, you know, if you have any training in business, uh, you know that there's a cost of doing business. You ever heard that phrase? What's the cost of doing business? It costs money to be in business. And basically, if you have any training, you would have maybe learned that there are two broad categories of cost, fixed cost and variable cost. Now, the fixed cost in a business would be like things that uh, cost that you have to pay every month or every so often. Uh, and they don't change no matter what the volume of business is, like some insurances and building costs and pensions. And a lot of the, the bigger costs uh, are fixed costs. And the variable costs are the costs that change with the type of business or the projects you're doing. And generally speaking, people pay a lot more attention to variable costs and fixed costs. Nobody gets a real uh, happy uh, feeling about writing a, a rent check or a real happy feeling about writing an insurance check. Now, if you're writing a check to buy a boat, you know you're happy about it. If you're writing a check to buy a new car or something, that, that's fun. But nobody likes to pay for infrastructure. You know, have you ever heard that word infrastructure? That's the undergirding, the foundation of things. It's called the infrastructure. And the fixed costs in a business are like the infrastructure of that business. You know, I had, uh, I've always been around kids. I love kids, you know. Uh, pastor Stephen was a youth pastor, among other things. He did about 10 different things at Victory. But he's a youth pastor, and I was always going down there and, and messing with the kids. And most, for the most part, they invited me to mess with them, you know. But I, I love young people. <clears throat> and, uh, and so you'd have like 15-year-old kid would come to me and say, Pastor Gary, you know, I got a job. I said, you did. That's great, son. And he said, yeah, I'm making my own money now. Oh, your own money, are you? Uh, it's like $8 an hour, you know. And I said, uh, and he was talking like he was taking care of the whole household now, you know. And he said, I'm making my own money. You ever heard a, a teenager say he's making his own money? What's he talking about? He's making his spending money. <laughs> I said, really? I said, 
So uh, I, guess you're, I guess you're making a contribution to the mortgage of your house. Oh, no, I ain't doing that. I said, uh, I guess you're paying for your health insurance now. Oh, no, I ain't doing that. He's talking about paying for his spending money, right? So what about all that other cost? Well, his parents are paying for that. That's the infrastructure of his life. Now, when you start talking about infrastructure, you can get deep, deep, deep. You know, a lot of corporations, you know, there's, and of course, there's a lot of arguing of this, political arguing. You know, a lot of corporations, you know, uh, they say that they're making all this profitability, but then other people from the other side of the equation will come and say, well, you didn't, you're using a, uh, a, you're using a workforce that you didn't educate. You're, you're driving down roads that you didn't pay for necessarily, and, and you may be polluting air that doesn't belong to you. You know what I'm saying? So the infrastructure can get deeper and deeper and deeper. And if you want to argue about it, who's paying for your gravity? You know, did you wake up this morning and thank God for gravity? No, you probably didn't. But I promise you, that's a part of your infrastructure. That's a part of you being able to stay on this planet. Did you thank God for your oxygen this morning? Did you wake up and say, thank God for the oxygen? Nobody pays attention to infrastructure. You understand? That's the point I'm trying to make. We take it for granted, don't we? We take the infrastructure of things for granted. You know, I heard that 92% of the federal budget is already spent. No matter who's in office, every year when it comes time, and like we had just got a new president, you know that, President Trump. I'm sure you all heard of him by, by now. <laughs> he makes himself known. <coughs> but, they, but that 92% of the budget of the federal government is already spent. So Congress and the president, they only argue over about 8%. The rest of it is what we would call the infrastructure of government, and it's very expensive. And sometimes people say we're not getting our money's worth, but that's a political statement, and I'll let you Deal with that yourself. You know, no politician wants to work on infrastructure. You know, people, when they take office, they, they don't promise to fix the infrastructure. Because nobody wants to take care of something that somebody else should have taken care of in a prior administration. You understand what I'm saying? No, there's no glory in infrastructure. I mean, what's the glory is in building new stuff and building stuff that new people's name can go on. You know, that's the kind of promises that you make. But... Nobody wants to do somebody else's dirty work. You know, the American Society of Civil Engineers. Is anybody here a member of that? No. Nope. Well, anyway, the American Society of Civil Engineers about 10 years ago was, I think Congress actually asked them. To, they said, we want you to look at the infrastructure of America. Now, infrastructures like roads, bridges, uh, the power grid, um, waterways. You know what infrastructure, you've heard that word before. So we want you to look at the infrastructure of America and give it a letter grade like in school, you know, A, B, C, D, like that. And they looked at the infrastructure of America. And, of course, you've heard about the deterioration of the infrastructure. I'm sure you watch the news like everybody does. And they said that um, they gave it a letter grade D+. plus. That's not great. I mean, the richest country in the world ought to have a better infrastructure. Than that. So they said, okay, how much would it cost to put it into A shape? where it was when it was at its peak. And they estimated almost $5 trillion. $5 trillion. Now, do you think we're going to spend $5 trillion on infrastructure in America? And bear in mind, we're $22 trillion in debt. Now, uh, President Trump just asked for a trillion dollars to work on infrastructure. And I don't know if he's even going to get that little bit. I'm just trying to make this point to you. Infrastructure is important beyond our wildest thoughts we take it for granted. And sometimes it gets away from us. And here's the problem about infrastructure. True infrastructure, whether it's in the kingdom 
or whether it's in America, and you know America is an amazing place. Amen? Uh, there's a thing called American exceptionalism. I believe in that. I mean, we're an exceptional nation only because Jesus is here. Jesus made America great. You know, I know President Trump's trying to do that, but if we don't get Jesus in America, and by the way, if you notice that he, we don't talk about him as much in this country as we used to. Is that, is that true down here? Because it's sure true in Denver. We don't talk about Jesus in this country, and we're losing some of that Jesus sensibility in the country. And we don't want to lose that because here's the problem with true infrastructure. Only God can make it. You know, the beautiful infrastructure of America, all our roads and bridges and everything, men didn't make that. It took too many years and too many administrations. Something, there had to be a common denominator through all of that to make that happen. In a beautiful country, we have best roads, best bridges, best waterways, best national parks, best everything like that, best air. Jesus made that. He may have used men to do it, but he's actually the one that was behind it. He was the one that was picking up the tab for all that. It's just like that kid that goes to make his own money, and, and you know he's so happy with himself because he doesn't have to pay any rent checks, mortgage checks, insurance checks, health benefits, all that stuff. He doesn't have to pay for that. See, Jesus has been picking up the tab for us for a long time. Can you say amen to that? And we don't need to run him off because he's picking up the tab. So infrastructure is built by God. You know, uh, Adam got to name the animals. You know the story? Adam got to name the animals, but God built a garden. That was called God's garden. He said God planted the garden. Adam didn't plant. He said, you go in here and your job is to name the animals and take care of the garden, which is kind of funny because it was called paradise, the perfect garden. There's nothing wrong with it. Can you imagine poor Adam goes out there and he's looking for something wrong so he can manage, you know, you can take care of it. Gardeners take care of problems, don't they? And he's going and looking and he come back, Lord, I, I can't find anything wrong. Every grape is perfect, you know. Every apple is perfect. Every peach is perfect, you know. He said, well, go out and name the animals then. That'll give you something to do. But, you know, Adam was not picking up the tab for paradise. So infrastructure. So there's a, an infrastructure in the kingdom, just like there's a, a natural infrastructure. There's an infrastructure in the kingdom. And only God can build that infrastructure. Even though we can lose it, only God can build it. I like what, what he told Job. You know, Job kind of got in a place, and he actually said this. Job said, I, I should have never been born. Now, you know, a person doesn't have the right to say that. But he said that, and God came along and said, oh, really, Job? He said, where were you when I hung the moon? Where were you when I put all those stars in place? Where were you when I built the foundation of creation? Where were you? You think you know so much. I like Psalm 22, it says, don't move the ancient landmarks. And that means don't mess up what God has established. So today I want to talk to you about a few of what I consider to be imperatives. Imperatives in the kingdom. And, uh, and I think some of these are, are being compromised now. So I, 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 don't, mean to, I, I don't mean to bring a doom and gloom uh, message to you, but I think it's something we need to be alert to. Because we can do something about it, and when I get to the end, I'll tell you what we can do about it. Even though I, I don't know, I know that you can't single-handedly rebuild the infrastructure of America or the infrastructure of the kingdom. The first imperative, and this has been a classic par imperative with me even before I was talking about imperatives much. And that's what I call the Christological imperative. 
The Christological imperative is an imperative of the kingdom. Obviously, Christological, it means Christ-centered. And so what this is about is that the person of Jesus has to be centermost in the kingdom of God. In Christianity, Jesus has to be centermost. And I don't mean the work of God. I mean the person of Christ. The person of Christ. I'm not talking about what Jesus did, even though that is an important part, and it is an imperative. The cross is an imperative of the kingdom. But more important than just the cross is the person of Christ. You know, uh, a notable scholar and theologian, R.C. Sproul, maybe some of you have read some of his stuff. About 10 years ago, he was being interviewed, and the, and the interviewer said, what is the, what is the biggest challenge to Christianity today? What's coming but we have to look out for it. And he said, that's very simple. We are losing the person of Christ in the church in America. We're losing the person of Christ. And the interviewer said, well, what happens if we lose it all together? He said, it's over. You can't lose the person of Christ from Christianity. Um, you know, in a marriage, you marry a person. My son just got married about six weeks ago now, I think it was. 26, uh, 36, never been married before, finally got married, hallelujah. And, uh, and I did the ceremony, you know. So anyway, they come before me, and, and there was nothing but them. You know, we don't let anybody else get around that, that altar, because that's the holiest place on earth when you're getting married. Because you're, the Bible says, and Paul said this, he said, when I speak of marriage, I'm speaking of Christ in the church. You know, Jesus marries the church, if you had that teaching, he's the bride of Christ, that the church is the bride of so they're sitting right there, uh, Clay and Yolanda, his uh, wife-to-be, and we're going through that, and there is nothing else around them. Now they're married for six weeks, of course. They're starting to think about, you know, they have a mortgage, you know, have a home, and they have other things that they're doing that they're involved with, you know, and stuff like that. And I pray that they don't lose that relationship of just the person. Because you marry the person, all the other things, with the children and... Um, all the other things in the household that come along with that, you know, that, that's another story. But you marry the person. So when you get saved, you get married to Christ. He's supposed to be foremost in your life. So we get up every morning, and the first thing that we should do is think about Jesus. Think about Jesus. Now I'm going to show you some scriptures here to illustrate my point a little bit. In one of, and one of my favorites for the Christological imperative is uh, Colossians uh, 116. I think they even have that for you, maybe. So this is Colossians 116 through 18. For in him all things were created in heaven and on earth. And him is Jesus there, by the way. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. And for him, and here's the key right here. Listen to this, verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. This is 18. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in him all things may have preeminence. So it says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, I think that's the NIV, but let me see that. I like the King James. It says... And in him, all things consist. In him, all things consist. How important is Jesus? 
Well, I'll tell you how important he is. He's holding everything together in real time right now. How many of you know about the string theory? Now I'm really maybe off the subject here. How many of y'all ever heard of string theory? Uh-oh, I got a few. Any nuclear physicists here? Any, any people? Anybody teach nuclear physics at Raging Cajun? <laughs> no, listen, there's a thing called string theory. You're welcome to look it up. You Google it. Is Google there? You, do we Google? We like to Google. You know what Google is? We know what Google is, don't we see? Just Google string theory and you can read all about it. It's kind of something that came on the scene in uh, theoretical physics about 30 years ago. And it's been, um, it's been worked on. And uh, th- just a real short, I know we don't want to get bogged down here, but theoretical physics kind of got in a funk in the early 80s. And basically what happened to it is the more they could look at atoms in a deeper way, the smaller parts of atoms, the more they began to understand that they didn't really know as much about the atom as they thought they did. And somebody, one theoretical physicist of note, said in the late, um, said in the late uh, 70s, he said, we know almost everything there is to know about the atom now. And then God let them look at the atom in a much more, in a much smaller place. And that because they had better ways of observing atoms. They had these colliders and things that they look at them. But anyway, they looked in the, when they looked at the atom then, they couldn't, they couldn't, they didn't understand what they were looking at. So everybody kind of went back to the drawing board and they all came together as they began to come together, symposiums and everything. They all found out they were looking at this new, at a new way of looking at the atom. And it was almost like God had helped them figure things out because they all started to come up with something and they finally called it the string theory. And let me just tell you in the smallest, simplest way that I can explain it, everything they say is made out of strings. You know, we have these particles and all this stuff in physics, but they say everything is made out of strings, little tiny strings. How tiny are they? million times smaller than an atom. Nobody will ever see one because they're theoretical, but they say everything's made out of these little strings. And I got all involved with studying this because there's a great biblical truth in that. Let me tell you a couple biblical truths that came out of string theory. Number one, no net momentum in the universe. What that means is, If something is making the universe go right now, and if that thing, whatever it is, stops, it just goes away. It doesn't like have momentum. You know, your car runs out of gas. You're going 60 miles an hour, 70 miles an hour. You run out of gas. It doesn't just stop, much less just disappear. It slows down because it's got momentum. But the string theory says there is no, no, no momentum in the universe. And everything is made out of little strings. So whether energy, like the light, or whether... Stevens, Pastor Stevens sitting right there or this table, they're all made out of little strings. Everything is made out of one thing because in the beginning, God made everything, didn't he? But it had a problem. You know, Genesis chapter one, don't you? What was the problem? It didn't have any form to it. It was just stuff, a muddle. And what did God do to make the muddle come into form? He began to do what to it? Speak to it. He began to speak to it. So here's what the string theory says. Everything's made out of little strings. And the only difference between me and nuclear energy or anything that exists is the frequency which the string vibrates. Everything's made out of the same thing. And only because the string vibrates at a different thing is it something different. So this chair and this iPad and me and all that, we're all made out of the same stuff. The energy that's, that's around us, the the, uh, the solar energy, everything's made out of the same thing. It's just that the strings vibrated a different thing. And, and they say this, something is making the strings vibrate. 
They don't know what it is. They don't know what it is. They know it's strings, but they don't know what makes it vibrate. Do you have any idea what could be making those strings vibrate and make everything come into reality? It's right here in the book of Colossians, isn't it? He was before all things, and he made all things. It says he made all things, and in him all things hold together. You see, in him all things consist. In real time, Jesus is making you right there. Because if, if somebody doesn't sing the song to the strings, everything goes away. How imperative is the person of Christ? He's making everything happen. So every morning you ought to just get up and try to crawl up into his wheelhouse. Because if, if you can get him to sing a little different song, you can completely change the reality of your life. Do you understand what the implications? And this is scientists. This is not evangelical preachers talking. This is scientists saying this. That everything's made of these little strings, and however they vibrate is the reality that they produce. And somebody's got to be singing that song. Somebody's got to be speaking to those strings in real time. You ought to say hallelujah at that point. Because you know him who sings the song. In him all things consist, the, the King James says. In this NIV, all things hold together. They keep their form. Colossians 2.8 uh, Paul says, this is beware, and that's Colossians. Paul wrote Colossians. And in Colossians 2, he says, beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy or empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And listen, and you are complete in him. Jesus is all you need. You are complete in him. Now, you have to figure out a way to utilize him and to be utilized by him, but you are complete. You don't need anything else. And, you know, we make, every, we make a whole lot of things go along with Christianity. Steve and I were just talking about, about other imperatives that creep up, like we couldn't get the lights to work. We were going to cancel the service. You know? <laughs> I said, don't, no, brother, don't do it. It's not an imperative. You know, one of the things that we that surround Jesus and emanate from him and make the church, and we begin to prioritize those things. So the first priority I really want you to get, the first imperative, is the Christological imperative. We must keep the person of Christ foremost in our, in our mind. The second imperative I want you to know about is the imperative of, imperative of unity. Unity. Now, I'm going to tell you, who sets, who sets these imperatives? I'm just identifying them, but God himself sets these imperatives. Who builds the church? Jesus said, who's going to build a church? Paul? Peter? Us? Who builds the church? I build the church, he said. I will build the church. And he builds it on these imperatives. God sets the boundaries for things. He, set, he makes the essence of things. Who invented, if the string theory is right, who invented the strings? Did we invent strings? No, in the beginning, in the beginning, God made, uh, in the beginning, God made everything, and it was void and without shape, and he began to speak to it. We know who made the strings. We know who's making them in the form of reality today. But the unity imperative is so important. In, uh, in Ephesians 4, I think you have that one, you do, 2 through 6, let's read that. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing one another in love. And here's the key right here. 
Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Make every effort. How important is it? When somebody says, make every effort to do something, how important is it? It's fundamentally important, isn't it? Keep the unity of the faith. You know, God is into unity. Why is God into unity? Because God's into the body. Now, you know, he's your personal savior. He saves every person, one person at a time. He's got the hairs on your head counted. That's pretty easy for me and Steve. You know, with Megan, he's got his work cut out for him. Keeping up with those hairs. <clears throat> I told Megan I was going to I was going to work on my hair, both of them this morning. So, no, he keeps up with everything like that. But he he's into unity because he's into the body. So when you get saved, when you come to Jesus, you don't just get saved as an island alone. You get saved and you get made part of a body. You you get Saved into the body of Christ. You get made into part of the body of Christ. And God is into the body. Now, why is God into the body so much? Well, because he's going to marry it. Now, how, what husband doesn't want his wife to be put together right? Amen? Amen. I mean, with my, I've been married 42 years. I, I don't want parts of my wife just to go flicking off someplace, you know, just leaving there. I, I, and, and I want her put together in a right way, you know? We used to have a phrase. I was probably not even proper to talk about it. We used to say, is that person was put together right, you know, or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Hallelujah. Yeah, hallelujah. Girls were put together right. Guys, some assembly required. <laughs> Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit. Just This is talking about that body I was talking about. There's one body and one spirit. You are all called to one hope. When you were called, that was the hope of being in the body. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of us all who is over all and through all and in all. God is into unity. Now, um, let, me, let me give you a parable here. Let's just say, let's tell you how important unity is. Just remember you're part of a bride. You're part of... Of the body of Christ. He said, He's the head and you're the body. As the believer, you're the body. Let's just say that Miss America, I think they still have, then they almost did away with Miss America. But anyway, they, but they have Miss America. You know what Miss America is? It's a big pageant, you know? And so when that girl, whoever wins that, I mean, she gets lots of money, and then her whole life for the next year is just uh, completely spoken for. She has the busiest, one of the busiest schedules of any personality, I think. So let's just say that. So many want to, people want to meet with Miss America and see Miss America. It's just not possible for her to be in all those places, so we just part her out. Now, they said that one of the great things about Miss America was that uh, she has the most beautiful eyes of any Miss America ever. And everybody wants to see those eyes, so we can't send her everywhere, so we just have to take the eyes out and send the eyes over there. So we send one eye over here and one eye over there, and you go meet Miss America, and there's that eye sitting right up on that thing. Is this a problem? Does that bother you? It bothers me. That's creepy. And she has the most beautiful hands. So we send one of those hands someplace, you know, and that hand starts moving around, you know. Boy, everybody is leaving now, right? <clears throat> well, that's what the body looks like when it's all busted up. Unity is important to God. We have to preserve the unity. Well, you say, you know, a lot's been said about 
about unity. And if you then, then the whole theme of loyalty gets in there. You know, you have to be loyal to a body of Christ and then to, uh, loyal to a specific body. And, and if you get loyalty out of whack, if you get an overemphasis uh, on unity, what do you have? You could have a cult, couldn't you? Listen, if you, you know, if everybody has to be together for no reason at all other than just to serve a leader or something like that, you could have a cult. So, it's, so unity can be dangerous, can it? So what do you have to add to unity not to have that happen? you got to have love. you got to have love. See, unity without love can, get, can be very dangerous. But God is into unity just because it's dangerous. That doesn't mean that, that we have to eliminate it. That shouldn't mean that we shouldn't practice unity. We should, and in America, we are far less concerned about unity than we are independence. I'm talking to Pastor Steve about that, riding in the car. He said, yeah, well, independence is everything for us. We want to be independent. Boy, if you think it's bad here, go to the West. Everybody, that, that's, people go there because of privacy. They, they don't want people messing with them. You know, in, in the South, people like to congregate. Hallelujah. That's why I, I still, I'm still a son of the South. I still like to congregate with people. But in the West, typically, you know, people, they don't like to congregate necessarily. Down here, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Up there, it's what you know. You know that's true, isn't it? Y'all, don't you know people... The minute you say something, I know Mississippi's like this. Maybe Louisiana's not so bad. But in Mississippi, the minute you say, uh, you're from so-and-so, well, I had a cousin lived up there, you know. <laughs> I had a guy from New York one time uh, uh, was down in a place there, and they had a, some local people there, and he said he was from New York City. And they said, hey, do you know a Smith fellow lives up there? <laughs> He's my cousin. Only 8 million Smiths in New York City. Anyway. <laughs> But at least down here we have some affinity for congregating. We like to get together, don't we? We don't like to go in opposite directions. So there's a, an imperative for unity. We spend far too little time preserving unity in the body. We get our feelings hurt, we're gone. You know, we get something doesn't get said right and, and we leave. But that's not God's will. You know, we have to... And why do we lose imperatives? Why do we lose the Christological imperative? Because a whole lot of other stuff gets in the way. And we find ourselves not even, not even concentrating on Jesus. I can remember the Jesus movement in the, in the 60s and 70s. They had the Jesus movement, and they called people Jesus freaks. Y'all, any y'all old people saved a long time ago maybe remember Jesus freaks? Well, the reason they called them Jesus freaks is all they talked about was Jesus. I've seen like... I've seen presidents of outlaw biker gangs get sovereignly saved in those days. And, all, and just you could say, Jesus, they start crying. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's saved. Amen. That's the Christological prayer. But I know people, too, that they were, they were so tightly bound as a body that, that no offense could break them up. That's because the, the level of love was there. So the last uh, imperative I want to talk to you about is the imperative of love. The love imperative. How important is love in the body of Christ? Well, let me tell you. Paul says this. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know this. Most of you that have read the Bible at all will know this scripture right away. He says here in 1 Corinthians 13.1, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. And then in the 13th verse, I'll skip down. Uh, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So I want you to look at the things Paul here compares to love. He said, if I speak with the tongues of angels, what is that speaking in tongues? I don't know. That's y'all do that here. I'm pretty sure. I I know I saw Stephen do it this morning. I was doing it. We were doing it together. And, And how important is speaking in tongues? It's important. How important is the baptism in the Holy Spirit? It's important. Is that something we just want to eliminate? No, we would never want to eliminate that. But he said, without love that goes along with that, you're a clanging cymbal and a gong. You know what that's? You know what that? That's a a throwback to what pagans used to do. Have you ever seen? Everybody been in in Nepal, been in Tibet, and and seen the quasi holy people there? They bang on these cymbals, bong, 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 just incessantly banging on cymbals. Why in the world they what they think they're accomplishing? I don't know. But that's what God says. Speaking in tongues sounds like if it's not motivated by love. If I have the gift of prophecy, is prophecy important? Well, yeah, prophecy guides the church. It said the spirit of prophecy is the spirit of Jesus himself. So prophecy is important. And how important is it to have revelation in the word? We need that revelation, don't we, to navigate the word of God. How important is the word of God? Well, the word is actually actually one of the uh, imperatives. But he said if you have all that knowledge... And you don't have love, you're nothing. If you have faith, now how important is faith? We talk about faith. I mean, we have faith movements. How important is faith? If you have faith without love, you have nothing. And I think right here, I like what Paul says. He doesn't just say you have nothing. He says you are nothing. He said, if I had faith without love, I'd be nothing. He said, if I gave all... All I possess to the poor. How important is giving? Do we preach giving? Do we believe in giving? He said, if I gave everything to the poor and even gave my body over. That's the ultimate sacrifice, isn't it? To give your body up to hardship. But I don't have love. I would gain nothing. So how important is love? Is that an imperative? Is that part of the infrastructure of church love? You bet it is. You bet it is. You know, Jesus... um, in his preaching, in his three-year uh, ministry, he made, uh, he would, uh, he was like a circuit rider. That's a good way of putting it. And, and his ministry was uh, headquartered up in Capernaum on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. But he would leave that region and go down to Jerusalem during the feast days. Now, there's three great feasts of Israel. The Feast of Passover is the first one. It's in the springtime. Fifty days later is the Feast of Pentecost. That was when the church was born, by the way. But in the fall, later way in, later in the fall, is the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, I had a lot of fun with that. It's actually, there's a couple of feasts. It's a long feast. It's got like 14 days all together. The latter part of the feast is called the Feast of Booths, which means uh, like a booth, uh, uh, like you would see a booth at a fair. But a booth is, uh, is like a tent. They would go and make... Uh, tents out of brush, and, they, and God would tell them to go out there and live for a week in those tents. And then what they were, 
what they were symbolizing was when they were in, wil in the wilderness and they were traveling around and they didn't have a permanent home, so they would go out there and live. And just so happened, I, I had booked three days of going up into the mountains with Petey. Petey's my dog. And uh, so Petey and I went up for three days in the mountains and camped up there. And it just happened to be during the Feast of Tabernacles. So I said, boy, I hit that perfect, you know. And so I told the staff, as I, I told them I'd be gone three days, and I was observing the Feast of Tabernacles. But anyway, maybe you get that, maybe you don't. Just a great coincidence. Um, where am I at? I forgot. Talking about Petey, and you know, I hadn't seen him in a couple of days. By the way, he's a black lab. So this shows you I still have that Louisiana sensibility. Um. Hmm? The feast, thanks. What was I saying about him? <laughs> so on the Day of Atonement, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> the Day of Atonement, that's what I wanted. So just if you know that between the, the beginning of the feast, which is the Feast of Trumpets is the first part of it, in between there is uh, the High Holy Day of the Jews, which is called Yom Kippur in your calendar, but it's called the Day of Atonement. That's the highest holy day of the Jews. And after that is the Feast of Booze. Um, but anyway, on the, so Jesus makes these circuits. So in A.D. 29, he misses the Feast of Passover. Now, the Feast of Passover is important to Jesus because he is the Passover lamb, right? He's not the type like Moses had. He's the real deal. So anyway, uh, so he misses A.D. 29, but he does, so in the spring, he doesn't go down to the feast day in A.D. 29, but he does go down to the Feast of Tabernacles. And so on the high holy day, Yom Kippur, Jesus stands up. Now, what would have probably been happening when he stood up? What, what happens on the Day of Atonement? Anybody know? That's when the priest, one time a year, actually goes into the Holy of Holies, right? So the priest is in the Holy of Holies, and he's over there in the, you know, in the, in the temple, what would have been at that time, the rebuilt temple. And uh, Jesus is in the courtyard. There's probably people all over this courtyard waiting for that priest to go in because this is a big deal. This is Super Bowl for the Jewish religion. And Jesus on the other side, he stands up and he says, Come unto me, all ye that thirst, and I will give you to drink. Now, when you drink, how do you drink? How do you drink down here in Lafayette? Do you drink in? You get that iced tea, you drink in. Well, Jesus said... Come to me, all you thirst, and I will commission a well coming out of your belly unto life. You know, in Christianity, yes, you drink out. Did you know that? You drink out. He said, if you're thirsty, let the river in your belly come out. And you pour that all over everybody. And that's the river of life, by the way. It's not the river of death. So be careful, he said, what kind of water comes out of your well. Because you can't have good water and bad water out of the same well, amen. So come out of your belly shall come rivers. And that's what you drink. So in order for you to drink it, you got to pour it out on other people. Does that make sense to you what I'm saying there? So and then he concluded by saying out of the belly of the believer shall come rivers of living water. You know, believing is important. By the way, believing is also an imperative. It's part of the imperatives. Believing. Aren't you glad Jesus said they that believe right never die? He didn't say they that behave right never die. How many of y'all would be disqualified if they that behave right never die? You know, it's what you believe, isn't it? That's the key. So Jesus said, out of the belly of the believer shall come rivers of living water. So what that means is love should come out of you all the time. Never should stop. It's an imperative. It's part of the kingdom imperative. So 
What did Jesus say? Love your enemies. Why should we love our enemies? Does he want us to become a doormat for enemies? No. He tells us to love our enemies because he doesn't want anything to stop that river. And if your enemies can't make it stop, then surely your friends shouldn't. How many of you got upset with somebody in the, in the body of Christ and you just kind of quit loving them? And Jesus said, hey, I told you to love your enemies. That person, you may be upset with them, but they're not your enemy. They may, they may not be as cool as you, but they're not your enemy. Right? Have, has that, have you ever had an offense shut your love down? Happens all the time, doesn't it? But Jesus said, out of the belly of the believer shall flow rivers of living water, not inconsistently, but always. Does this make sense to you? The Christological imperative, you can't, we can't get away from the person of Christ. Get up in the morning and go find Jesus. Sit there and spend some time with the person of Christ. You know, and, and there's so much written about the person of Christ. You can get to know him. You read the scriptures, you can get to know him. Unity. You don't let anything come between you and the body of Christ. Just tell the devil to take a hike. Tell him to take a hike. Say, devil, I'm going to be unified regardless. If Jesus died for me and he was holy, I can put up with a little aggravation. Amen? Lastly, don't let anything shut that well down in you. Let that river flow out of you all the time. You say, well... Sometimes that's hard, I know. And you know what I do? you got to let the love of God go through you. Not your own love. He doesn't want your own love. Where does that river come from? It comes from the throne of God and pours through you. Look, if you can't love them, love them with the love of the Lord. You know, I say, I don't like that person. I'm not going to love them. But if you want to love them through me, that's fine. Okay, I'll be the, I'm the conduit today. I'm the hose, you know. I say, I'm out of water for that person. But if you want to pump your water through me to them, that's fine. So we can't lose the church that God wants us to have. We should pray for restoration. So here's the point. When these things go away, like R.C. Sproul says, they can't be recovered by us. But they can be recovered. If God made them, he can save them. If God made them, he can remake them. Amen? You know, Jesus came to save that which was lost, not them, everything that was lost. And he can reclaim this. So here's the point I want to leave you with right here. We can pray. Prayer is also an imperative. You can't have church without prayer. And our imperative is that we pray for God to maintain and restore all of these imperatives. We've got to have them. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. (laughs) That worked out good, didn't it? Father, right now in Jesus' name, I thank you for Foundations Church. And Lord, I thank you that here, hallelujah, we have love. Here we have unity. And here Jesus is high and lifted up. The person himself, not just his attributes, not just his works, not just his saving grace, but Lord, him himself is lifted up. And I thank you, Lord, that you're going to preserve that here. Now you're going to preserve it. You're going to grow it, explode it. And, Father, that which we felt even in the worship this morning, Lord, you're going to export that out into the, out into the parking lot, right down into South Park Road and right out into all of Lafayette. And, Lord, we just ask you to emanate from us, Father God, in Jesus' name. And we thank you for that. Amen. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Thanks.
It may not be a short walk. Stand up. It may be a little long walk. PG, I never thought of, hey, it's just supposed to flow continually. It's outward. It's totally the opposite of the way we are supposed to live. That's it. Stand up, stretch it out. Let's pray and close. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for what you're doing in our life. You are instilling in us by the word of God and the spirit of God these imperatives. You never leave us, forsake us. And if Jesus is at the center of our heart, we will always have them because they're yours. Thank you for it, Lord. We receive it. They're ours in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.